Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen, and we're here with you. To, we're here with you guys today. We're continuing the refugee crisis series, and we hope you enjoyed our little mini break um, where we're providing you guys some of the smaller segments with the Ask Dr. Karen and some of the other smaller segments. We're hoping you guys enjoyed that. Phil, what do we have on our show today? Yeah, well, today, you know, again, after that, the mini episode, and, I, and again, I'm so excited about that. For those of you who that was your first one that you listened to, it's not our typical, or it hasn't been our typical, but hopefully become the new typical for us, um, where we're able to have great interviews like the one we have today. Um, and then, you know, every so often, maybe every other week, we'll see how we, how, it, how we like it and how, you know, if you can give us some feedback on that, that'd be great. But if it's something that everyone seems to like, then we'll be able to have every other week or so uh, mini episodes. But Today, we have a great, uh, another, another just great interview. It's, it's a guy who's doing some amazing, amazing work in Iraq. He's been there for a few years, brought his, brought his family over there, uh, really, as he'll, as his, he'll tell us about. It was, it was really kind of after 9-11, they were looking for something to do and uh, to really make an impact in the world. And, and God led him to Iraq. And it's just a, it's a crazy story. Um, but, uh, he's doing some amazing stuff and, and it's really in the context of this refugee crisis series, it's something that he's been there, um, for years and years and it's just part of what they do. Um, and it's, it's a big part of what they do, but it, as he talks about preemptive love coalition is who Jeremy works with. Uh, he's the founder and executive director of it. He wrote a book called preemptive love and I strongly recommend reading it. Um, but, uh, you're going to hear more about him. In, in this interview and then we'll come back after the interview and talk a little bit about it but uh, you're in for a treat so here it goes well Jeremy it's so great to have you here today yeah man honored to be with you thanks so uh, Jeremy you know I know a lot of people uh, that are listening in you know we got listeners from all over the world some have, some have heard of you some, some have not some don't know about the work that you're doing uh, in Iraq and elsewhere in the Middle East. And so I'd love for you to just uh, share your story uh, briefly and, and just really kind of tell our audience uh, what led you to live in Iraq with your family and start the Preemptive Love Coalition a few years ago. Well, I'd, I'd say uh, 9-11 was really what prompted us uh, in a lot of ways. We were fresh out of college, just married a couple of months, and 9-11 happened, the attacks on 9-11. And I mean, like most of the country, uh, we, were, we were devastated. We were scared. We were looking to respond in some way and uh, had our whole life ahead of us. We weren't saddled with a, a mortgage, didn't have kids, uh, and we had a lot of options ahead of us. So we ended up launching out into the world, skip over a couple of years and ended up landing in Iraq in the middle of the war and um, came in initially with the the hope of serving war widows and orphans um, and and we're doing that uh, out of the gate but um, I met a little girl pretty early on who was in need of a life-saving surgery and in the process of just trying to help this one kid became aware of hundreds and then soon thousands of other kids who were in this same sort of condition who, who needed these life-saving surgeries and so uh, we left what we were doing and because there were other people doing that kind of stuff. And we focused on this group of kids who needed surgeries. 
And uh, ultimately, it just got to the point where we needed to create an organization to really give it all that it was, all that it needed, all that it was worth. Yeah, and I know the book Preemptive Love that you that you've written. Um, it's a fantastic book. Strongly recommend everyone out there to read it. Uh, talks a lot more detail about that. You know how you got there, what what the work that you're doing. But I know a lot of that you talk about. Um, the work you're doing with preemptive love is how you talk about how violence is really unmaking the world around us and unmaking us around the world. Uh, can you flesh out what you mean by that and just uh, you know tell us how preemptive love is actually getting into the the muck and the mire around the world and particularly in the Middle East and really trying to, as you say, love first, ask questions later? Yeah, I think um, before I set out into the world, uh, when a lot of this was just ivory tower, philosophical, theological, you know, kind of pontification, I would have maybe thought of violence as bad, inconvenient. Um, but I, I didn't understand the degree to which it, it completely unmakes societies. It's not just that, um, a bomb falls and a building gets destroyed and, you know, kind of that's that and someone can come in and rebuild the building. In the process of that bomb falling, in the process of extremists taking over a neighborhood, um, we're, we're dealing with more than just physical structures that get destroyed. It, it's actually, it's unmaking that entire community, like literally the commune, the, the commonality that people share, the trust, the, the bonds, the identity, it all gets ripped asunder by violence. And so uh, as I sort of waking up to this idea that, that violence isn't really just about the things that we often report on, it's not just about bodies that get killed and buildings that get destroyed, it's about the entire world itself coming apart at the seams. Um, we we wanted to dare ourselves to to challenge ourselves to blackmail ourselves even into believing that um, if, if violence is going to unmake the world as it is, could we be the kind of people who would who would dare who would dream to unmake violence itself to uh, as the phrase goes in the, the Lord of the Rings series. Um, cause all the bad things to come untrue. Uh, so, so that's, that's what we've been set out, setting out to do now for the last decade in, in Iraq initially, but then expanding out of Iraq into to Syria where we have a lot going on. Um, Libya, uh, other countries that aren't quite as beset by war proper, but are definitely, um, affected by violence like Iran and uh, looking to get into to some places like Yemen that are extremely affected by violence right now and as well. And so what does that look like? I mean, in, in our hateful, hate, often hate filled world um, that is, you know, like you say, it's often scary as hell. And uh, what does that look like to go into that? Um, you know, as an American too, right? I mean, it's not like you're, you were born and raised in the Middle East, and you're working in, in your own backyard. I mean, you're, you've been there for a while, but what does it look like to come into that and to actually you know, show love in the midst of this violence to really try to really undo, you know, like you said, a 
culture that is it's so ingrained right now in our world today? What does that look like? And practically, if you have a story or two to share, that'd be, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I mean, sometimes being an American is a huge disadvantage and sometimes being an American is a huge advantage. It's not, and, and frankly, um, what people think of when uh, in certain parts of the world, when they think of an American, when they visualize an American, they, they probably visualize me more or less. Uh, so it's not literally just about the passport that you hold. It's also what you look like and, and racism and those kinds of things run amok here as well. And so, um, all that to say, I enjoy a certain amount of privilege, uh, actually in a lot of these places because I look the way that Americans are often expected to look here. And so while some people would aim to do me harm because I'm American, a lot of other people would roll out the red carpet and, and make sure that I'm sort of treated as, VIP or untouchable as well. So it's kind of a untouchable in a positive sense. Um, so I, I, I would want to be careful to kind of tell both sides of that story. Um, while certainly we, we are at risk in some of these places and we'll never pass as locals. Um, and that puts us in a, a place of vulnerability at times. Uh, the converse is also true, but I'd say what it looks like more than anything is partnership. It looks like uh, us acknowledging humbly when we come in that we are not ultimately going to be the solution to anyone's problems in Iraq or Syria or Israel, Palestine, Yemen, Libya, Iran. Uh, people are the solution to their own problems in a lot of, in, in most situations and, and they need help. They need partnership. They need a hand up. But, um, if, if we come in arrogantly thinking that, they have no resources here. They have no skills. They, they've always been this way. And we, the enlightened ones, need to bring peace or, or bring development uh, or bring God even, you know, then we are off on the wrong foot. And so it looks like partnering with, with local Iraqis, local Syrians, local Libyans to, to help them realize their dreams in, in their communities and for their countries um, yeah, so I'll pause there for a minute. That's not a story yet, but yeah, you know, I mean, I think that that, it reminds me of, uh, the, one of the quotes in your book, you were talking with, uh, with someone in Iraq and you were just talking about peace and, you know, and you were talking about the peace is really when it was something along the lines of, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was really about the idea of it's when you start caring about the other um, more than yourself, really, and caring about their flourishing more than yourself. That's when peace is really in, in existing. Do you remember, you know, that and, and kind of what you're getting out there and what that might look like in, in the relationships? I, I think that that section in the book is a, a quote from Golda Meir, um, the, the former prime minister of Israel, who has this famous quote to the effect of uh, essentially we'll have peace when the uh, Palestinians learn to love their children more than they hate us, the Jews. Um, and I actually, I actually regret putting that quote in the book because I think it's, it's very simplistic. Um, I, I think it's, it's a very sort of jingoistic way to look at another community and to, to think about how, how they've been traumatized and how they process the world. And so, 
um, I think I've, I've lived through some more trauma myself. We've seen since I wrote that book, the, the massive rise of ISIS in and across uh, the Middle East and North Africa. We've, we've been around and, you know, lived through the genocide against the Yazidis and uh, Assyrians over these recent years. And I just think then, therefore, living through some of that stuff and seeing the way that pre- people process their own pain and trauma and how that leads to reactions against the other, uh, it, it's left me in a more nuanced place where right. I, I, don't, I don't espouse or wouldn't want to propagate that same idea that I that I grabbed onto from, from her quote in earlier years. Mm-hmm. And on that, to that, to that note, on that note, as far as I was watching a movie recently that you were interviewed by Mark Foreman and he, he talked about, um, you know, are there limits to that love, that preemptive love that you're talking about, you know, with, with the ISIS, you know, with the, the gut people in ISIS and other people as you're talking, as you just talked about that are, that are the ones that are perpetrating these, these awful things around the world. And, you know, I love how you responded to him about, you know, really getting to know the individual. But, you know, at the same time, as you said, it's nuanced. There are some potential, you know, limits. We all have limits. We're human, right? So can you speak to that for a bit? Because I know there's some people out there that are going, come on. You know, how in the world are you going to, if a guy's sitting there and just shooting people with no concern for life, how are you to go in and love that? Um, So how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think, I mean, as much as anything... Uh, it, it's about who I want to be and who I want to, to become more than it is about who, who they are. Um, that's, that's one clause. Another clause would be how seriously do we want to take Jesus at his word? If we, if we would be followers of Jesus, um, if we would be worthy of the title uh, Christian to somehow be many Christs and, and made in that image and walking in that way, how seriously would we take that command to love our enemies? And I don't know, honestly, I don't, I don't know how far I could go with it, but I, I'm more focused on trying to put one foot in front of the other and go as far as I can and ask God for the grace to keep going further. Uh, You know, the truth is most of us aren't living the kind of life that would even put that to the test. Mm -hmm. And so to play armchair philosopher, quarterback, and criticize those who are is, you know, it's kind of silly and not really worth my time to engage a lot of that debate. What I know is we've, chosen the kind of life along with a lot of our local friends, whether Muslim or Christian or whatever, across Syria and Iraq and and Libya and Iran and beyond, who are trying to figure out how far can we push the limits of forgiveness, the the limits of love, how how far can we stretch to do reconciliation? And some days are better than others, frankly. Some some days um, we don't want to go serve those people and and we feel very defensive and we feel very scared and we feel like the the easier better thing to do would just be to stay home uh and other days we feel a little more emboldened and, and we we get up the courage to love anyway you know right 
and you you kind of have also alluded to this in the last couple of answers you've given, but just the stuff that you've learned over the last few years, um, several years working in Iraq, living in Iraq, getting to know the people there. And and I've heard you speak at a few different conferences and, and listen to a lot of different things in preparation for this interview. But, you know, so much of what we're hearing in the media, so much of what we've seen over the last couple decades with the different wars, the different things going on have caused so many you know, myths to really arise, and I think just a, a picture, this caricature of the Middle East, um, particularly in the U.S., but also in other parts of the world that I know that people have. Um, you know, what, what, what of those myths, and I know that obviously that's a somewhat vague question, but I think that some, what are some of the things that you thought may be going in that they have been totally dispelled and your mind has changed? Um, and what would you like the global church to know about Iraq and the rest of the Middle East as we're, we're seeking to, to love anyway in the midst of this this uh, crisis that we're, we're facing. Mm. Man, it's a great, great question. I, I definitely didn't understand the importance of history. And as a result of not understanding and valuing the importance of history in general, I didn't know the actual history of, of a place like Iraq or Syria or Iran or Libya or Turkey, you know, these, these countries in which we live and move and have such profound influence on, on geopolitics. And, uh, I, I didn't devote myself. I wasn't a student of history. And so I wasn't aware when I was making some of the same mistakes and some of the same assumptions that people who had gone before me had made that led to folly. Um, and I wasn't aware of much of the, the richness of, of a place like Iraq, for example. I, I didn't know how developed and how amazing this country was. I didn't know how developed and amazing Syria was um, until... I came to live and move and spend my life here. And uh, when you, when all you see of a, of a people or a place is, is a negative story played out on the news. And, and let's be clear, this is, this is not just about those people over there in Iraq. I mean, we have this same dynamic going on in our American communities as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you only see a certain people portrayed a certain way ever, and you are not exposed to that same people as heroic, that same people as uh, full of ingenuity and and brilliant and diplomatic and you know loving and kind and self-sacrificial, then then you come in with a certain kind of bravado, a certain kind of arrogance, a certain kind of self-righteousness in which you think. You know, from from my vantage point, I grew up uh, in the church, son of a pastor, um, follower of Jesus. I, I was righteous by all accounts, and they were the enemy. They were the guys with guns who who we had to go and you know kick out of Kuwait, and then then they were developing weapons of mass destruction to kill us, and then they supported the terrorists, and everything I knew about them them, those, the Iraqis was, was pretty much negative and bad. And that was just not the reality 
once I got here. That wasn't the reality once I got to Syria. That wasn't the reality once we started working in Iran or, or Libya. And so um, I, don't, I don't remember exactly how you worded your original question, <laughs> but I think I just, just waking up to the danger of a single story, waking up to the danger of a single narrative that portrays a people as a monolith and allows us to fancy ourselves as the hero rather than humbly recognize that, that they have something to teach us. I've been so enriched by the, the people of Iraq and Syria in particular um, that I didn't imagine that would happen. That's That wasn't on my agenda when I moved to this part of the world. I, I probably wouldn't have said so, but on some level I moved here to save them. Mm-hmm. And as much as anything, I think they've played a, a significant role in saving me. Yeah, and I think that that uh, going to the idea of you know, look, this is it's not just a bunch of blown up buildings in this country where people are just running all over the place, and you know, often the scenes that we see is just you know burnt up everything, you know, right? And as you're talking about getting there and meeting the people and seeing how life you know, doing life with the people, you're really getting in to understand the truths behind, you know, people are people to a certain extent everywhere we are around the world. And there is hatred and there are these other things. But, uh, would you say that, you know, when, as you're getting in there and understanding the people more and more that, um, you know, you're, you're seeing that a lot of the, the cultural differences are there, but at the end of the day, when you really kind of start doing life with people, it's very similar to the the relationships that you're going to be having wherever you are, or is it is it a very different experience there than you had when you were in Texas growing up? Well, it's different to be sure, but um, yeah, I mean, it's both. Of course, there there are fundamentals that are the same everywhere, and for as cliche as that is, it, it is also at the same time very profound when you when you've grown up. Um, as the product of, of both cold and very hot wars uh, with, with a group of people who are in the news, like Russians or North Koreans or Iraqis um, or Arabs in general, Palestinians, you know, the, these sort of perennial bad guys that we have in our axes of, our axis of evil, uh, to to see that the cliche applies to them as well that that they are families and they are trying to raise their kids and and we all want more or less the same things um even those cliched kind of tropes are are very very moving can be very moving um and then of course it is different i mean life in iraq is not the same as life in austin where i, I grew up the latter half of my childhood or, or denver where i grew up the, the first part of my childhood there are things of course that are the same grocery stores and cars and all that kind of stuff but you know culturally there's there's some very significant differences and um, the presence of violence nearby is presents its own, you know, unique opportunities and challenges. And I think as much as anything, um, back to the, the idea that violence unmakes the, the very world itself that we share, I think the chronic trauma and, and what we now 
know increasingly through research that, about the way that trauma and stress rewrites our very DNA mm -hmm. so that generationally speaking, we are, we are literally being unmade by violence. Genetically, at the DNA level, we are different than our grandparents if we have, if we consider continue to suffer trauma. Um, and, and so both on the psychological level and the physical level, I think that the way that my friends in Iraq and Syria and, um, Egypt and Libya and Yemen, any of these places that have lived under 10 to 30 year dictatorships, um, they, they live with a, a kind of chronic neurosis that, that is foreign to most of us, I think. And, and so that's, that matters. That, that yeah. affects society in profound ways. And so it affects how we live here. Absolutely. And I think one of the ways that it, it has played out in, in uh, where you've been working and the, a lot of the work that you're doing now is in connection with the refugee crisis. And I'd like to transition into that a little bit here. And talk about, you know, specifically with that, you know, we talked about some myths about Iraq and Syria and the rest of the Middle East. Um, I'd say the, the refugee crisis, too, has this, it's been so politicized and such a, it's become almost a, you know, just a, another thing, another issue, rather than real lives and a real thing that is happening every day that you're in the middle of right now. And so I, I kind of want to ask the same question I asked earlier about Iraq and Syria in the Middle East, just what, what is about the refugee crisis? Um, would you want our audience to really understand um, being in the midst of it that we don't see with the media coverage, that we don't see and hear about with the you know, political debates and whatever it has been over the last year in the U.S. Um, so that we can really understand what's going on in the day-to-day -day lives of these people that are in the midst of it? Yeah, first of all, um, Americans have a mass, and this is, these are generalizations by and large, but um, unfortunately, the refugee conversation has become a lot of generalizations. Americans who fear, who, who seem to adopt a, a very fear-based approach to this conversation have a massively overinflated sense of where America ranks in the minds of the world. This idea that, that all Syrians and Iraqis and whoever else are just wanting to flock to America and overrun our country is, is just hubris. It's not true. They don't, they don't care about us that much. They don't all want to come live in America. Not even a, not even a significant proportion of them want to come live in America. The truth is most of them would would much, much prefer to stay at home. Uh, the idea that everyone's just clamoring to get into America is one of the greatest misnomers of this whole conversation. Um, and furthermore, people, so, okay, and then on the other side, I would say that they, no, no one flees their home and sets out on a very treacherous, precarious journey, unless staying at home is, is just a horrific prospect. Americans, I, I don't know about you, but I, I mentioned very briefly already, I, I was 
born in California. I grew up first part of my life in Colorado, grew up the second part of my life in Austin, Texas, went off to a different city altogether to go to college, went to a third city to go to grad school, uh, and and then left after a couple of years of grad school and moved overseas, and I've lived in a couple of different places overseas. We are not a very geographically bound people. We move far away from our families to go get jobs and pursue careers and whatever. But that is not typical for for a lot of Middle Easterners, broadly speaking. It, it, in Iraq, um, it, it's very uncommon to leave the city where you grew up. Very uncommon. Even if you live in a city of millions of people, you often stay within close driving distance of your parents and live your whole life there. And so the idea that all these people just want to leave their homeland and leave their their culture and the, these cities and countries that have raised them and nurtured them to go be refugees elsewhere, uh, no one does that if, if reality at home is not very dangerous and very dire. So I think it's important that we inject a little bit of humanity back into the conversation and understand that um, these are these are life and death decisions. These are stuck between a rock and a hard place kind of thing. And and there's no as a responsible adult, there's no easy answer sometimes. Should I should I keep living here in this tent in a hundred and twenty five degree heat? for another year and just hope things get better? Or, or should I dare to get in one of those death dinghies and, and cross the Mediterranean in hopes of providing a better opportunity for my children? Who, who can make that decision? You know, it, and, and when we reduce these conversations to statistics and, and Skittles analogies and things like that, I mean, it's just, it's really inhumane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Inject a little humanity into it. It's so, so true. Um, and I, I know I was talking with uh, Scott Arbiter from uh, World Relief a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about this too, just the idea of, you know, displacement is such an understatement, you know, with what happens with these people. They're ripped from everything they know. And then when he told me that the average stay is 18 years in these camps, it was just, it blew my mind. You know, it was, that's when you start really seeing, like you said, the humanity, the, the thing that, and yeah, you're right. That's my life too. I mean, I've lived in all kinds of different places. The transience of our American lives is, is such a, it's a unique thing. I was just talking with somebody about that yesterday, that when we're talking about uh, families and different things around the world, it's, it's very different than what we know in the U.S. because it's such a tight knit for the most part everywhere else around the world. That very, very few places are as transient as we are. So to understand that brings such a, a different understanding to what's going on here and with that, what what are what are what work are you doing, and you and Preemptive Love doing in connection with uh, the crisis, and, and really working with the families, working with the people that are affected by this? So we talk about our work somewhat aspirationally in terms of trying to be first in and last to leave. What we mean by that is when when bombs are still falling and snipers are still sniping and entire communities are under ISIS control and maybe ISIS is driving people out of town or, or the war against ISIS is driving people out of town. Uh, 
while everyone's running away from that stuff, we try to be running toward it. We try to be running in and get as close to ground zero as we can, because often that's the most underserved place. Um, the aid industry, by and large, is set up so that it works on the periphery of conflict. Most aid is not actually about going into the conflict. Um, there are a few organizations that do, but the majority of it is spent outside. And what you what you find in conflict, at least in this conflict, um, is that there's a lot of people who stay at home. There's a lot of people who actually don't displace. And a lot of the conversation ends up centering on those who get displaced. Um, and they have very real needs. There's an entire group of people that gets overlooked in these conflicts. And they are the ones who who stay much, much closer to the conflict, much closer to home. It's harder for journalists to get to them and tell their story. It's much, much harder for aid organizations to take on the risk profile to get to them. So we try to be first in to some of these conflict areas and reach people who are, who are being uh, starved out and, and without medical care and on the run, but maybe don't want to run miles and miles and miles away all the way to the sidelines of the conflict. They want to stay close to home because uh, maybe they fear the ruling authorities out there on the other side. Maybe it's a different ethnic group or a different religious group out there running the camp and they, they have real cause to be concerned about continued discrimination and surrendering their sovereignty if they were to go out there to the sidelines, to the per periphery of it all. Or, or maybe they don't want to see their home destroy they, they they're cognizant of the fact that when a city like aleppo or mosul empties out of its people that's when indiscriminate airstrikes become even more of a thing and and then you get just mass destruction like we've seen in the old city of mosul or like we've seen in the east city of aleppo and so they don't want to surrender their their territory and and you get lots of civilians who say I'm going to die out there anyway. I'm going to die in a camp. So why shouldn't I just die at home? So we work to get into these places with food and water and medicine. And then the last to leave, first in, last to leave, the last to leave component is sort of our aspirational way of talking about sticking around to the bitter end. Uh, not Actually, not the bitter end, the beautiful end. <laughs> uh, when, when things are remade, when, when things are... Um, put back together after the media moves on, after a lot of the aid packs up and moves on, the UN goes away. Uh, we aim to work with individuals and communities to feed again and start jobs and start their businesses back, and rebuild city infrastructure and rebuild hospitals and schools. Um, so it's that, it's that two-pronged approach of hand out what is needed immediately and urgently, but turn the corner as quickly as possible, stop doing handouts and start helping people to stand up on their own and rebuild their own life, making money for themselves, putting their own kids back in school, rebuilding their own houses, things like that. So that's how we talk about it. First in, last to leave, emergency response, and then long-term economic development. Yeah, which is great. Um, and I know, I know too, you've talked about uh, how others, and I just want you to speak to our audience now, just really how we can stay engaged with the crisis, how we can understand what's going on. I mean, are there any 
places to get you know real information that we can trust about what is going on first of all and then you've talked about you know really getting involved beyond the headlines and can you just speak to what that looks like as well for our audience to be able to understand how we can be involved um, in a real informed and uh, effective way yeah you mentioned um, where we can get information that we can trust uh, which which I think is a real concern for a lot of people. And obviously this whole conversation over the last year or two about this, this idea of not trusting the media or even fake news has, has come to the fore. So I'll just say um, with great confidence, you can trust the media reporting on these conflicts in places like Raqqa and Mosul and Fallujah and you know, across Iraq and Syria and, and Libya and some of these places that are in conflict, Yemen, Israel, Palestine, if, if you're following the major players, New York Times and Washington Post and uh, Associated Press and Reuters and Agence France Press and things like that, you, these are my friends. I, I know these journalists. Uh, I know the bureau chiefs who put their lives on the line to go out and get the story. They are far, 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 far more in the thick of it than almost every other international aid organization or missionary or diplomat or anyone else you can think of. These journalists are on the front lines getting this story. And, and this idea that we can't trust the media is, is actually very, very harmful and bogus, at least in this case that I'm talking about. And so... On behalf of my journalist friends and the journalistic community, I'll just say you can trust war reporters. It's not to say that they're going to get every single fact right every single time. Right. These are complex, nuanced uh, you know, conflicts, but um, they are brilliant people who, who are putting their lives on the line more than any other single group of people except for soldiers mm. to make sure that they tell the truth to the world. And, um, and frankly, I hold them in higher esteem than soldiers on any side because they, they inevitably come with much, much more objectivity and, and they are truth tellers. They don't, they don't go in with the agenda that a soldier does. And so I think that we would do well to respect journalists around the world who go into these hard, hard places to tell the truth. Um, for our part, we've worked really hard over the last uh, number of years to, to be more journalistic and to tell the truth and to make sure that we are also on the front lines and we are also uh, pursuing the other side of the story that often doesn't get told. And we're leveraging our decade plus in the region to, to bring some analysis to the fore. So our website, preemptivelove.org, is, is a place where I would encourage people to, to pursue, not, I don't say that we're unbiased. We are biased. Our bias is for the people of Iraq and Syria. Our bias is that they, they have these, these skills and this hope and this optimism and this beauty inside them that often doesn't get told to the world. And so, so we, we speak from that bias. If anything, we want to make sure that we're telling sort of the other side of the story on behalf of our Syrian and Iraqi and other friends across this region. So preemptivelove.org um, is a place that I would offer up as a place for information as well on that. 
That'd be great. And, and are there any ways, I mean, I, we can obviously be praying for what, what you're doing. We can give money. And I encourage people to get involved with what Preemptive Love is doing. It's fantastic stuff. Um, but are there any ways that we can, you know, practically get involved in this, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's other places around the world that people are listening in, um, that, that you could help us understand how we can get involved uh, on, a, on an active basis, so to speak, if people are interested in that? Yeah, I think we overthink these things. I mean, you, what I think it means to be involved, um, what, what I want people to be involved in is this idea that we call preemptive love. Um, whether or not you involve yourself with the organization called preemptive love is, is for another time. You're welcome. We would love to have you involved with the organization. But what concerns me far, far more is that we give our lives to this this posture called preemptive love, this way called preemptive love, and I think we overthink that. We wait for our we wait to know all the answers. We we wait to make sure that there's there's no risk left. That we sort of deconflicted uh, all the questions that hang out there in the ether, and we find ourselves often, too often, not doing anything at all because we're still waiting for the returns to come in on on some of those questions that we we sent out into the world. And, and the truth is the, the answers are never going to come. We, we get the answer by, by doing it. You know, we make this road by walking. And so if, if you're not taking a step toward the thing that scares you most, then you're not, you're not doing it yet. And so I would just say, do something, just start to try and identify the thing that scares you. And then Practice that, that that first principles kind of idea where you just ask why why am I afraid of that? Okay, and, and then why am I afraid of that? If I, I think I'm afraid of ISIS, okay, why am I afraid of ISIS? Well, I'm, I'm afraid to die. Okay, great Why am I afraid to die? Well, I'm, I'm afraid to leave my family great Well, why am I afraid to leave my family alone and you just practice that why thing all the way down to the bottom 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 why until you can't you can't think of any more fundamental why. And once you start to face that fear, I just say, count the cost of what it would mean to really own up to that, to, to really invest yourself in, in those things that scare you. And then ultimately just take a step, take a step toward the thing that you found there at the bottom of all that whys. Step into it, lean into it. And, uh, especially where there's a person involved that you can step toward and get to know. My experience has been that, that a much more beautiful world than the one you live in right now will unfurl before your eyes. And, and it's actually been there all along, um, but it, it stays hidden to us until we choose to step into it. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're the, you're the second person in a couple of weeks that I've asked this to, a similar question. And I love the similarity of the responses too. It's really just search within yourself what what it is that you you know you're thinking on a lot of these different things, and, and God will make it clear what you're supposed to be doing. The what will come out of that why and out of that searching and out of that seeking, um, and the how I think will come as well. Um, the other thing that your answer made me think of was our you know our mutual friend Andy Crouch's recent book that he talked about the true flourishing will come when there's that 
vulnerability and authority, that meaningful risk that is there. Without that, we'll never flourish. And I think that that's something that people often try to avoid, especially in our world today, where it is so easy to avoid the risk. Um, but you're not going to flourish when you're when you're when you're not stepping out into that into that scary place, as you said. Um, well, I, I know that uh, we could we could talk about these things for a lot lot longer, but uh, we, we're coming to our last couple questions because um, I know that uh, you you have things to get to as as do um, as do I. But uh, these last couple questions, um, you know, we ask all of our guests, and I, I always look forward to the answers. And so the first one is, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Man, um, it really hasn't been a book for me. I didn't, uh, if anything, I guess it's probably just been news reports over the years. That's what, if if I had to point to something that maybe first drew me in, um, it was, it was those 800 word news articles that I was kind of referencing earlier. Those, those have had a profound impact on me over the years, whether it was drawing me into Fallujah for the first time or giving me the courage to go into Mosul or helping me, you know, engage Syria, Iran, all these places have have really often had at their core, the the catalyzing event was often a a news article. Um, And then from there, you know, I, I will often get deeper into books about the history of a country or a conflict or, or a community. So, um, there's not a particular book that comes to mind, uh, in terms of how it's catalyzed me to engage orphans, but, but those on any given day, you know, there are scores and scores and scores of news articles out there that mm-hmm. could have that effect on, on my life or, or your life. Maybe, uh, Maybe we should try to be more present and more awake to those headlines and, and the articles beneath them that come across our, our feed every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, and then the last question, what, uh, what person, or it could be a re- person representing other people as well, but uh, has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? You know, I think I've been probably affected by by local friends here more than anyone uh, I mean sure I could I could say Mother Teresa or whatever but but the truth is it's it's the people here that no one's ever heard of um, who one woman in particular in Iraq named Hala and one woman in Syria named Mary who who have just had a, a profound impact on me and my understanding of, of what's possible in these lands and, and what's possible in terms of people working for their own country and, and wanting the help of outsiders like me, but, but not needing my help per se, you know, not needing my expertise, certainly, um, needing my advocacy, maybe needing, some of the resources we can bring to the table, but they are in and of themselves brilliant, amazing. They are the Mother Teresa's of, of this land. And so the, I think the chance to, to work side by side with these amazing women has been uh, one of the great honors of my life. 
Well, that is a that's a great place to, to finish up, and uh, thank you so much, Jeremy, for uh, for your time, for your wisdom, for what you're doing um, with your family in Iraq, and just uh, thank you for just sharing with us, encouraging us, and challenging us, really, to, as you say, love first and ask questions later, and what that might look like in our lives if we can venture out to, to do that. So thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, brother. Thank you. Well, as usual, there was a whole lot there in that interview. Um, we could talk for days and days about the, all the different things that uh, Jeremy brought up and, and uh, really so many different things going on um, in Iraq and other parts of the world. So, so Karen, what, what about what Jeremy talked about really, really grabbed you, really stuck out to you? Yeah, there there are several things in his interview that that stuck out for me. I think you know some of the the kind of catchy phrases that he had, and, and I don't at all think he was saying them to be catchy in, in that type of way. But um, you know, one of the things he said was just love first and ask questions later. Um, I thought that was really relevant, especially related to the series that we're working through. And um, what what I heard and and. I don't think he used this terminology, but what I heard throughout the interview was um, just a real intentionality to personalize the the trauma and to personalize the, the refugees in general. You could tell that this man has lived a life, not just as an expat, not just as someone um, living in a foreign country overseas. You can tell that he's actually living life and, and doing life with the people um, in Iraq. And, and that was encouraging for me. And um, it was exciting for me to hear about the work that he and his wife and the organization that they started are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that, that you kind of hit it on the head that he is, you know, he's really put his entire family and life into this area, into this people. As he, as he talked about, he understands the history it's so important to understand the history of the people that you're working with so you can fully understand their story. And, you know, and that's something that was very clear in, in this interview that I had with, with Jeremy and just in talking with him about it. But also anytime you hear him speak, anytime you hear, you know, reading the book that he wrote, um, it was something that was, was very clear that he has, you know, he's just empathetic. He, he really dives into their lives and tries to understand, um, you know, deeper than just the the narrative that is that is put out there. You know, and I think that that, that also you know it, it causes him to be edgy, causes him to be you know to make some statements that that are gonna rock the boat, that are gonna come in, and they're gonna cause you to really think. And you might not agree with him. And you know, I bet uh, I'd be very surprised if if you out there, you know, if there's some people out there listening that are you know, either offended by some of the things he said or divided by some of the things he said or, or just like, man, I don't, I don't really either. I don't understand it or, you know, something. And that's something that I, I, I really respect about Jeremy is he's, he's going to just be very clear in what he believes and he's going to share it. And he's not, he's not going to be swayed by, you know, the, the wind in, in what he believes. That being said, do I agree with everything that I've heard him say ever? No. Um, but that's what I love about this show too is you know we're not just going to get people on that I agree with everything that they say I want to I want to be thinking too and I know you you think the same way uh, Karen but one of the things that I know both of you tonight both you and I talked about before uh, recording 
was just the idea that, you know, when he talks about being first in and last to leave, and, and as he said, stick around, and he even corrected himself, and he needed to, to make sure he said to the beautiful end. He said the bitter end at first, yeah. and he said no, to the beautiful end. And, I, and that was something that really mm-hmm. stuck to me that, you know, most of us don't get to see that. Most of us come in and do a little stint, do something in whatever it is, um, but you don't get to really live life, do life, and see that to, to, the, to the bitter end. And, you know, it was there or to the beautiful end. Excuse me. I'll correct myself as well. So, um, you know, with that, Karen, was was uh, was there anything else? Yeah, there's several more things. Um, one of the things that I really liked his phraseology to you was um, of him saying a couple of times and um, that we have kind of a, a group of people or, or several people groups who have experienced such significant amounts of trauma from the refugee crisis that were genetically being unmade by violence. And um, I was sitting here trying to think of our friend's name or a mutual friend, definitely more of your friend. I think um, she probably wouldn't know who I am, but I think she knows who you are. I think her name is Dr. Hollis with the CDC. You can correct me. Please correct me, Phil, if I've said her name wrong. Yeah, Hillis. Susan Hillis. Hillis. There it is. And sorry about that, Dr. Hillis. And um, I just remember some of the stuff I've read and some of the stuff I've listened to that she talks about is just how, how much Um, children and teenagers are impacted by violence in general. Um, And so I think some of the stuff that Jeremy was talking about, there's legitimacy to it. I think there's, you know, some um, controversy related to epigenetics and what does that look like related to the heritability of trauma. So I'm not trying to get down that road, but I think that even that kind of word picture that he describes for us that we're, um, you know, experiencing and he's working with people and, you know, um, those of us that are interested and in, in trying to get involved and even just become more educated about the refugee crisis, that, that word picture of people that are being genetically unmade by violence that really stuck out for me, Phil. Mm, yeah. And, you know, and something he's, he's said many times and it's kind of one, almost becoming his tagline where he says, you know, when the world is scary as hell, you should love anyway. We need to love anyway. And, you know, what does that look like? And that's something that, you know, you continually, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, just what does that really look like um, to love in the midst of just this terrible crisis, uh, you know, that, that's, that's conflict. And there's people, as you know, I, it, actually Mark Foreman, who we talked a couple weeks ago um, about, the, you know, the movie he made and Jeremy was in that movie and, and Mark had asked him and I, in, the, in, the, in the interview about, you know, how do you love uh, ISIS, isn't there a limit to that love? And, you know, and Jeremy said, yeah, there is a limit. You know, what is that? He kept saying, he just kept trying to push that line further and further down the road as far as what that limit is and what that looks like. And as you get to know people um, to the extent you can, um, that definitely that definitely does change. It definitely does change. It does not see him as a caricature. Um, that yeah. being said, there are people who absolutely hate and that are pure evil in this in this world. And we can't be, you know, uh, naive to think that oh all we need to do is love and all we need is love and that will take care of everything because it doesn't always but but we can choose love and and let someone you know let it basically play out and see how it see how it plays out um so yeah so you know i, I think that do you, you know do you have anything else to kind of close out the, this uh, conversation about about jeremy no, I think you did a great job with that. And I think that um, even what you said a couple of moments ago of just him really referencing that beautiful end. Um, and I'm hearing what you're saying, that we can't just be all about love, love, love. Love is the only thing. But just really remembering the fact that, um, you know, everything is going to be made 
untrue. All of the bad things mm-hmm. are going to come untrue and, um, all of the, the difficult things will become righted and there will be justice and there will be, um, a new day and there, there will be a redemption in all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that brings us to the, uh, the recommendation, the, the Phil and Dr. Karen recommend section today, I am going to be, uh, sharing with you, a, a podcast that, uh, I've, I've come to, to be a big fan of. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're going to be coming out with, uh, and partnering with them in, in some different ways down the road. Um, and it's the tapestry empowered to connect podcast. I know we've talked a lot about Dr. Karen Purvis on this show and, and the connected child and out of that the empowered to connect uh, conference had, had had come and and tapestry is a big part of that in uh, at Irving Bible Church they have a great um, great podcast where they're just sharing about you know how to really uh, use TBRI really use the principles that, that Dr. Purvis um, did talk a lot about in the connected child and, and throughout her life and, and what they're really teaching at these conferences so strongly recommend um picking that up on on uh, starting to listen to that on itunes or however else you listen um out there and um i know you'll i know you'll learn a lot and i take again as, as we talk about every week i just uh, hope and pray that you'll take everything that you heard today um what you might learn from the empowered to connect what might, you might learn from listening to some other stuff that jeremy uh and our other guests have, have talked about online um and in different conferences and you'll take all these things and you'll you'll use it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better and more and more every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Think Orphan.